Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. It is the 15th of August, 2022. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. What do you have planned for today? What does the Lord have planned for today? You have enough margin in your schedule to accommodate what God has planned. You got room for some divine appointments that God has on uh, on his plans for you may not be on your plans for the day. There you go. Let's uh, let's be sure that we are attentive, that we are on the lookout for those opportunities that God is going to place before us today to be people of light and sow seeds of peace, to walk by faith, um, to intercede where he calls us to. I want to lift up one um, one headline from the last couple of days still an unfolding story, and I think one that um, as Christians in the culture today, um, we we need to be paying attention to, not just because we all have pastors who stand up in environments like Salman Rushdie was standing up to, um, to speak, but because uh, the place where this unfolded, Chautauqua, um, is, you know, is a place where um, you wouldn't expect this to happen. And most of us live and go to talks in places where you wouldn't expect this to happen. And so I want to have a conversation about where we should expect things to be happening. So Salman Rushdie is a 75-year-old author. He was left severely injured after being stabbed on stage during an event in New York, just about 70 miles from Buffalo, in a really idyllic resort community called Chautauqua. Um, And... Salman Rushdie has faced years of death threats. Uh, In 1988, he published a novel entitled The Satanic Verses, uh, emphasis there on the word novel. Uh, And at that point in time, the religious head of of Iran issued a fatwa, which included a $3 million bounty for anyone who would kill Salman Rushdie or his publishers. Um, And that bounty remains in place, that fatwa and that bounty remains in place to this day. So in response to the attack um, that took place on Friday, Iran's state media gloated. The language of divine intervention is what caught my attention. So I want you to think about that for just a moment. Divine intervention. How many of us have already prayed today, this morning, or in recent days for divine intervention? When we pray God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for divine intervention, are we not? When we pray for miracles of every kind, are we not praying for divine intervention? When we pray that our thoughts might become more his thoughts, our ways more his ways, when we agree to cooperate with the active work of God's Holy Spirit within us, bringing us into ever greater conformity to Christ, are we not praying for divine intervention? I think we are. I know we are. 
How then do we judge when something is, in fact, divine intervention, when God is using a person in his agency or as his agent to carry out his will? Because that is what this individual um, thought, apparently, he was doing. So I think it's, uh, it's essential here to acknowledge that the divinity, the God, being acknowledged by this particular individual who, I mean, you know, all of the, uh, all of the information is not in, but he certainly regarded himself as sympathetic to the concerns of the Iranian state. Um, we've got to acknowledge that the, that the divinity, the God, being recognized here by this individual is a different God than the God to whom we are praying in the name of Jesus. Now, as soon as I declare that, we're going to tread into deep waters in terms of the conversations of the day, because many people like to imagine that because Islam is rooted in the Old Testament story of Ishmael, a son of Abraham by Hagar, that Islam joins Judaism and Christianity as a legitimate Abrahamic religion. But that assertion should be tested every time it's made. Because the Bible asserts that the God of Abraham is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is a distinct genealogy, a lineage to the Jewish and then the Christian faiths. Read the genealogies of Jesus at the opening of, uh, of, of Matthew and Luke. There is a seed, there is a root, there is a vine, there are branches, there is fruit. And knowing and understanding the reality of the God who is revealed in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible and his fullness revealed in Jesus, that is basic Christianity. That is God. So specifically, quickly here, addressing the issue of Salman Rushdie. On February 14th, 1989, the Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran and one of the most prominent Shia Muslim leaders in the world, issued a fatwa calling for the death of Salman Rushdie and his publishers. And so Salman Rushdie has spent the subsequent 33 years looking over his shoulder. Why? Because he believes in free speech. He believes in the right of a person to speak freely about their beliefs or about their imaginings, in this case, a novel. And yes, even when those beliefs are offensive to the beliefs of others, we are free to speak them. And others should be free to speak theirs. So what is the most offensive thing you've ever said? I can tell you the most offensive thing I've ever said, because I say it all the time. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and no one comes to the father except by him. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and no one comes to the Father except by him. There are places in the world where the, that assertion, that statement, would cost me my life. One of the unique qualities of the American idea is the sanctity of the First Amendment. And the First Amendment provides that Congress is going to make no law respecting an establishment of a particular religion or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. It protects freedom of speech, the press, assembly, and the right to petition the government for redress of our grievances. It protects Salman Rushdie and his publishers and the people of Chautauqua to gather to listen to him, and it protects me today to declare over these airwaves that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and no one comes to the Father except by him, even though that is tremendously offensive to people who believe otherwise. So my question is, have we arrived at the point in our common life where people have become so convinced that words are violence, that they, that they think responding to words with violence is acceptable? 
because that's a serious moment if that is indeed the moment at which we find ourselves. We're going to turn next to the anniversary of the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. Our John Bradley was a lieutenant general in the United States Air Force. He served as commander of the United States Air Force Reserve Command, headquartered in uh, Washington, D.C., um, and he spent a lot of time at the end of his career in Afghanistan. Uh, we have talked with him on prior occasions. The Lamia Foundation is where you want to go for more information. Um, John, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much, Carmen. Nice to be with you. So this is uh, this marks a year. T- take us back a year and then um, fill in some of the color in between. Eventually, you and I are going to talk about the status of things today, but maybe here at the beginning, take us back a year um, and um, and and sort of fill in the timeline to bring us forward. As we know, a year ago today, the Taliban came into Kabul and took over the city, took over the government of Afghanistan. The president had fled with uh, his family and uh, a few staff members. And uh, the the Taliban essentially had uh, no one fighting against them as they came into Kabul. They had conquered several provinces in Afghanistan in the months before that. And uh, intelligence agencies had predicted this would happen quickly, and it did. Uh, Some people didn't pay enough attention. They thought it would take much longer, but it didn't. So the United States feverishly set up an operation to try to move out thousands of Afghans uh, from Kabul airport to other places in the world like Qatar and uh, into Germany and then onward to the United States for some. They eventually evacuated 124,000 people or so, which was very good. It was the largest airlift in history, but mistakes were made. It was chaotic extremely chaotic. And toward the end, there was a suicide bombing that killed 13 American soldiers, Marines, and sailors, and killed almost 200 Afghans and uh, injured many more. Uh, That bombing was horrendous and uh, carried out by, uh, they say it was an ISIS person who did the suicide bombing. Regardless, it did incredible damage and killed so many people, particularly 13 Americans that uh, we mourn. It was a very chaotic time those last two weeks. My foundation was working feverishly. Uh, My wife and daughter and I filling out forms for the State Department and the Defense Department to try to evacuate about 500 people we knew and 500 people, including family members that we knew, uh, to try to get them to safety and uh, that didn't work. None of the people that we submitted had uh, been called to be evacuated, but there was one tragic circumstance involving a family that we were trying to get out, which we can talk about it in a moment. But it was a chaotic time, but it was one year ago today. It's hard to believe it's already been that long. It is hard to believe. We're so thankful for you and um, and what you and your family and your foundation are doing um, you guys want to check it out, Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. We're going to continue our conversation about the current status of things in Afghanistan and what the Lamia Foundation um, has been very busy doing um, in this past year and looking forward to the future. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio 
Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with retired Lieutenant General John Bradley, who I think I made a colonel in my initial, um, what's the difference, John? Because, you know, those of us not active in the military, we don't know the difference between a colonel and a general, but there's different branches of the military. Is that correct? <laughs> it's it's okay, Carmen. I'm a civilian now, <laughs> not a general anymore. So it's okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, um, I'm reading um, Axios this morning. I'm reading the BBC. Um, Afghanistan has an economy that's in peril. Um, the government's budget is down 60% from 2020 levels. Catastrophic humanitarian crisis. Um, 20 million people facing a- acute food insecurity. 1.1 million Afghan children expected to suffer directly from um, severe forms of malnutrition this year. Deteriorating human rights situation. Um, arbitrary arrests, um, you know, the the subjugation of women um, and refugees in limbo. Uh, none of those are, are good signs. Um, a lot of language of, of hopelessness in um, in the reporting here. Tell us what the status is in Afghanistan from your view. And then I would love for you to share with people what the Lamia Foundation has been doing, even in the midst of all of this. You outlined it. Perfectly well, Carmen, there's just devastation of the economy. There's not an effective government. The Taliban do not know how to run a government. And they have subjugated women again to the point that they had in the late 1990s when they were in power in Afghanistan. Women are not allowed to go to work now. Educated women, university graduates who had fabulous jobs as lawyers and teachers and working in the economy are not allowed to go to work. They're, they, are, they are told to stay at home. They can only go out wearing a burqa that covers their entire body with a mesh screen in front of their face to see. They need to be with an adult male from their family anytime they do leave their homes. It's just a horrible situation. Young girls are not allowed to go beyond the sixth grade in school. It's just horrendous. Hundreds of thousands of people are hungry As you said, uh, the economy is ruined. People have no money to buy food. And uh, it's just a catastrophic disaster. The United Nations World Food Program has tried to help. There are reports that a lot of the food that they take into Afghanistan is squandered by the Taliban only and given to their families rather than the general population. So the situation is dire. It's awful. Women's rights. Uh, women have no rights there. Basically, they are told to stay at home and they can't get an education beyond sixth grade. The schools that my wife and I built, our foundation built, the Lamy Afghan Foundation, are operating up to the sixth grade. But we also have 15 home schools. This is not what people think of in America as homeschools. This is just a safe place in someone's home. 
and we've coordinated with village elders so that we don't get in trouble. We have a qualified teacher and we have 15 to 20 girls in each of these 15 homes. So we're educating girls with qualified teachers. Our foundation is paying for that, but we also, for we paid for five of those schools and we got a grant from the World Food Program Catherine Bertini Trust for Girls Education to do 10 more schools. So we're running those 15 schools and it's just phenomenally popular. There are more girls who want to come to school than we have room for, and we're gonna to try to expand to more if we can get a few more donations to accommodate that. But it's a wonderful program to continue education for girls, and we won't talk about how far we take them in school, but um, mm-hmm. we are no, being good. very careful and keeping the children safe. We are also feeding hundreds of people every day with the donations we get sending money today to help people uh, get fed. We send money every couple of weeks through uh, safe means here in the United States. I don't send money directly to Afghanistan anymore because that would put a target on the back of the person who receives it. So I have contacts here in the United States who are Afghans who have a way of getting money in. And so we are feeding hundreds of people that way. We are also running a women's health clinic with a fabulous young Afghan woman doctor who is delivering babies and helping women with problem pregnancies. She sends me videos of cesarean sections, which I've never asked for. And, uh, but she's doing wonderful work, saving lives, saving babies and mothers in childbirth. So those are the main elements of what we're doing, feeding people, educating girls and providing health care to pregnant women and also getting other uh, children who have, disabilities and illnesses, medical care through a network of doctors that we know there. It's it's really extraordinary. I want to um, tell everybody, hey, the link to these updates from, um, from the LAMIA Foundation are included in today's show notes. If you're listening via the podcast, you're going to find it really easy to find those links. If you're listening uh, to the live program, um, they'll be up uh, as soon as the show is over and posted as a podcast, then you'll have all of these links in the show notes for today at MyFaithRadio.com. Or you can go directly to Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G and click on New Updates and you'll get this um, full list. You'll get to see the partners, some of the partners that uh, that John and his team are working with here in the United States and around the world. Um, and you will be encouraged. You will also recognize the... Um, the nature of the need and how great uh, how great is the need, John? When you talk about um, refugees, I know there are a lot of people who left Afghanistan a year ago and in the days following that, um, but they have not actually arrived anywhere. They are very much in limbo. Um, what what can you tell us about, if anything, about that situation? Well. Some have come to the United States, but the clearance process takes a long time. Let me uh, catch you up on one story you'll recall from. Thank you. uh, The kids who came on an airplane. I want to know about those kids. Thank you. The father and the kids are doing great. They're in Alexandria, Virginia, with their their aunt, who is an American citizen, Farishta. She's a wonderful young woman we worked with for years. And the two children, uh, who are now 8 and 13, are doing great in school. And uh, their medical care has been fabulous. And Farishta has uh, temporary custody of them. The father and uh, older brother of these children, who were still in Kabul, we worked eight months with the State Department. And finally, in mid-April, the 13th of April, the father and son were flown by the State Department with others 
out of Kabul into Qatar. They've been there for 14 months, four months now, waiting to come forward to the United States. We were told last week that they were approved by the U.S. Uh, Customs and Immigration Service to come to the United States. We just don't know when it'll happen. Could be within days, it could be a few weeks, but they have been cleared. They've passed through all the hurdles they have to go through. Shouldn't take four months, but it has. But there are many other. So we're excited about that to get the children in Alexandria with their father. Their mother was tragically killed in the suicide bombing, and the two children, the children saw this happen. They saw their mother die in front of their eyes. So we want to get that family reunited. But they are. This is an example of thousands of others who are in limbo in different sites around the world where the United States has moved people from Kabul and are still waiting to be processed to come to the United States. It's a long, involved, uh, bureaucratic process, of course, and uh, we just pray that uh, the right people will get approved and get to come to the United States soon. Yeah, it's just such an extraordinary um, story. And so thank you so much, uh, as always, John, for um, your work and for sharing um, updates with us. We will continue to connect with you. Um, and just know that we're praying for you and encourage folks to visit with John and uh, consider supporting Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. There is a school board. Well, there's a school board in every community. But the one in Fargo, North Dakota, is the one I want to quickly bring into focus here today. The school board in Fargo, North Dakota. So, um, hey, listen up. I don't know. Are they called Fargonians? What, is, what do you call uh, the Fargoans. people of Fargo? Fargoans. <laughs> I live there. Right. Fargoans. I know. I know. So a shout out to those of you listening at 102.5 uh, KFNW and those listening on AM 1200 in the Fargo-Moorhead area. Um, perk up right now. Perk up your ears. Um, the school board in Fargo, North Dakota, has voted to stop reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, there be, might be all kinds of reasons that a school board might decide that. In this particular case, it's because they have a problem with two words, and the two words are under God. So the chairman of the school board explained that the words under God uh, had been added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954 by a joint resolution of Congress um, and and that uh, this board's vice chairman explains that those words are now problematic. Um, Those words have withstood numerous legal challenges over the years. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, upon signing uh, the bill, which added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance, said this, in this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war. So um, I think the question is uh, how many of our political leaders today um, understand that spiritual language, the language of spiritual weapons and the language of spiritual warfare, and how many of them understand our country's most powerful resource are the spiritual resources that we have. Um, This Fargo school board um, certainly does not understand. Uh, The board's president recommended that members replace the Pledge of Allegiance with a, quote, shared statement of purpose, which she thought was more appropriate for their work. Um, And so uh, they are now essentially functioning 
in terms of whatever is right in our own eyes at this moment instead of one nation under God. So those of you in Fargo-Moorhead, yeah, you, 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 you got something to do. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but mm-hmm, you got something to do. Daniel Bennett's going to join us next. We're going to talk about some of the headlines related to what's going on across the country. Yes, yes, we are going to talk about where we find ourselves right now in terms of the FBI's seizure of documents at Mar-a-Lago. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, uh, Dr. Daniel Bennett. You can find him at John Brown University and at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Good morning, sir. Morning, Carmen. Uh, I, I I hardly know where to begin in a conversation <laughs> about uh, the former president and the Department of Justice and the FBI and the storyline unfolding um, across several days, a week now. Um, so I'm going to let you do it. Thanks. <laughs> I, I, th- I mean, for one of the reasons why this is so difficult to jump into is it's it is unprecedented. We throw that word around quite a bit. Uh, but this is an unprecedented situation where you have the Department of Justice executing a search warrant on the personal residence of a former president. Um, the the other the flip side of this, though, is that Donald Trump is not a typical former president. You know, when George W. Bush left office, he went into retirement effectively and started painting of all things. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, has maintained this pretty lavish uh, residence, which is fine. That's his purview. Um, He's a public figure still. A lot of people want to be in his orbit, his vicinity. And the fact that there could have been these, these compromised documents in that type of vicinity would have been, I think, concerning uh, for government officials. And so it is unprecedented. But then again, we, we do live in, I, I'm sorry to say, unprecedented times. Talk with us about, um, now I just want to talk about like big, big, big blocks or big rocks here. Okay, so the big rock or the big block that I want to talk about in terms of who we are as we the people um, is... You know, this Lex, Rex, Rex, Lex, right? So no one is above the law. There is there's no king, right? The the law is king. Um, talk with us about that as a principle here in the United States. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, some of the rhetoric that we've seen coming out of, you know, more, I guess, conservative media or Republican elected officials has initially coalesced around if they can do this to a former president, they can do it to you. I mean, I think that's great. I think that's a great principle that the fact that the same law that binds me also binds the former you know, leader of the free world. This is a principle of American government that we, we elect a temporary steward of our executive branch every four years and we can either reelect them or not. And then they go back to whatever it is they were doing prior to serving. Now, of course, critics of uh, this this uh, search warrant and this uh, this uh, raid, if you want to call it that, on on President Trump's home. Uh, would point to maybe inconsistencies with how the law is applied. I think that is a legitimate concern. I think uh, I think you'll find plenty of folks on the left who would say, well, goodness, uh, if, if only the law were applied equally to people of color versus people who are white, if it was applied equally in terms of socioeconomic status. And so I think this is a a sort of bar that we're always trying to strive for, trying to reach. 
But in general, I think the principle is about as American as apple pie or baseball, that no one really is above the law. You know, we don't feel that way, right? I mean, I think that one of the things we're doing on a national level is we're having a feelings conversation. And you just pointed to um, reality, right? It it doesn't even feel in my own community like everyone is equal under the law. Um, It feels as if people in... um, you know, in elected positions and then those who those people have hired and who have served a really long period of time in a very small place, um, you know, they do what they want to do for themselves and their friends and they don't do it equally for everybody else. And that is Mm. like, is that not, I mean, at the most local of levels and then of course, you know, as we sort of graduate to higher and higher levels of governance, isn't that the definition of like crony capitalism and or corruption. I mean, when people point to their what frustrates us about the government, isn't this at the root of why we're frustrated? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's an unequal application of the law. I think uh, I think the governor of California pointed. I think this is the most excellent uh, illustration of this during the during the covid lockdowns in California. Uh, Governor Newsom was 100 percent. Yes, we need to be doing this, doing this for the safety of of everybody. And then within a couple of weeks, he was out at this, you know, five star elite restaurant without masks in violation of all the ordinances that he himself had promoted. That's the definition of what we're talking about here. And so I think we can we can hold two thoughts uh, simultaneously. We can say that, uh, you know, based on what the FBI has reported or rather has released in terms of what was seized, uh, we can say that, you know, if this is in fact the case, and I'm sure more will come out in the days and weeks and, you know, maybe months ahead. But, yeah, this was a problem that President Trump shouldn't have been doing this. And uh, we shouldn't let our partisan affiliation get in the way of that reality. But at the same time, we can be frustrated when we see elected officials from across the board uh, essentially escape that same level of justice. And so I think we can hold those two things at the same time, say this was OK. But, man, we have a long ways to go to make sure this is applied equally. Reminder here from a listener, I'm just going to read this verse. And you all, as you're listening, apply it as you see fit from John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered them, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight um, that I should not be delivered um, unto death, but now is, uh, but now is my kingdom not from hence. So I think it's a probably comes from the King James. But I think we get the point there. Um, we are people of uh, with allegiance to another king and another kingdom, but we are living in the midst of a particular, quote-unquote, kingdom of this world called the United States of America. I think that tension for people, Daniel, is real. Yeah, it absolutely is real, especially when our, our media and uh, siloed information centers make a lot of these battles seem kind of central to who we are. Right. Mm-hmm. It is, is my side winning? Is, is your side uh, doing things that are unfair? I think it's really and this isn't an, this is an indictment just on on Christians, certainly. But we have to be smarter and I think take a longer view to say, no, these things can be important. Right. As we seek to promote justice and speak up for the least of these. Um, but ultimately, our true identity is beyond where we are right now. That doesn't mean we sit things out. That doesn't mean we just kind of sit idly by and watch the world go past. But it does mean that we keep things in their right context. Yeah, that we're always um, that we're always mindful of the fact that this world is not all there is. This generation is not all there is. This nation is not the only one. 
um, that will that will probably stand on this particular ground, right? <laughs> nations nations rise and fall. It is really hard for us in a particular moment um, in an enduring system like ours to recognize how fragile um, any system of governance is and, you know, and the length of any particular nation state. And so I think that the for Christians, when you say take a longer view, I mean, we're talking about taking an eternal view. We're talking about having God's perspective on human history and our particular point in it. We're talking about having um, an understanding of what the Bible has said about time and uh, and the end of time and the rise and fall of nations and the witness of the people of Christ in the midst of every cultural um, and national context. You can be a Christian. There are Christians um, living under all kinds of forms of government around the world. Um, and so we have a unique position as people living in the United States of America. Um, but we should be mindful that Christians live as Christians in all kinds of kingdoms. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think just to kind of put a put a bow on this, uh, you know, the vast majority of Christians in the world today are not American Christians, right? They don't have the that's same right. types of socio-political concerns that we do. That doesn't diminish the importance of of what we're going through, you know, God loves, you know, all of his people and, and seeks their good. Uh, but my goodness, uh, we are but a drop in the bucket and praise God for that, that the church has grown in places that we couldn't have imagined. Yeah. Most Christians in the world are not American. That is a huge, important point to remember today. Um, Daniel, I want to talk with you about Alex Jones. I want to talk with you about disinformation and grief and the First Amendment and um, how long justice in America sometimes takes. So I want everybody to hold on uh, here for just a moment and think about Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook Elementary School. If you have to check your calendar, the date was December the 14th, 2012. Why has justice taken so long in terms of one person's public denial of what took place on that day. We're going to have that conversation next with Dr. Daniel Bennett. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show featured on the Faith Radio Network. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share at MyFaithRadio.com. My guess is you spend a fair amount of time on social media. So where do you spend your time? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube? Well, have you followed or liked Faith Radio on those platforms? I would invite you to do so. I'm there as well. If you want to check out uh, my personal pages, you could connect with me individually. We would love to have you uh, use the resources that we have produced and are creating and posting on social media for you to share with others. We got all kinds of stuff from graphics to, you know, Bible verses. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. Go check it out on your social media. Connect with us on Faith Radio's social media. And, you know, let's get the word out to others. All right. Back to the show. Again, thanks for listening. Love connecting with you at MyFaithRadio.com. Imagine for just a moment that you, uh, you know, sent your little first grader off uh, to school on December the 14th, 2012, and they were killed in a mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And then imagine that in 
August of 2022, nearly 10 years later, you are still fighting a battle for justice in the American court system because a very high profile individual has denied that your child died on that day, that a mass shooting even took place. We're talking about Alex Jones and we're talking about the outcome of a trial um, uh, featuring him. So, Daniel, we're talking with Dr. Daniel Bennett from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Daniel, who is Alex Jones and why are we talking about him today? So Alex Jones is a pretty prominent, uh, I would say, radio host. He's really found a, his biggest platform on streaming uh, and on the Internet. Uh, but he's, he's uh, one of the key figures in a website called Infowars, which is uh, a website that's generally seen as a conspiracy theory website and uh, media outlet, uh, essentially casting doubt on uh, the way things are and saying, well, if we could really only peek behind the curtain, we would see a lot more. Uh, going on behind the scenes. Uh, these are usually uh, these are usually stories about uh, negative things going on behind the scenes. And I think the Sandy Hook shooting is a really good example of this. Um, so after the shooting, pretty quickly after the shooting, there emerged this small, relatively small community online who started poking holes or what they saw as holes in the official narrative about Sandy Hook, basically questioning. Could this have really happened the way the government and, and officials are saying that it happened? Um, isn't it odd that they would say, isn't it odd that these, you know, parents were, you know, caught on camera, not crying, and then immediately going on camera and crying? They concluded that these were so-called crisis actors who were, uh, you know, essentially paid or, or essentially recruited to uh, do these media hits to essentially gin up sympathy uh, against uh, against gun owners and effectively push for a more robust gun control system. That was the gist of what Alex Jones was talking about on Infowars. Um, going so far as to say that you know a lot of these children who were killed in the shooting uh, didn't actually exist. That they were made up. That they were fictional. And they were their pictures were not were not real. And obviously, if you're a parent, this was devastating to to read this, to in some cases, to be contacted by people saying, you know, why are you lying? Your child didn't really exist. Wake up. You know, couldn't you, why aren't you, why are you doing these things to the American people? And it did take time, but uh, eventually a lot of these parents and, and uh, affected folks uh, filed lawsuit in, in civil court seeking financial damages against Alex Jones. And like you said, just recently they, they have prevailed. So let me just um, say, in case you're listening and you don't know this portion of the story, after years of telling people on Infowars that the Sandy Hook school shooting was staged, when Alex Jones was on the stand, um, he admitted in court that the massacre was real. Um, and that's important for people to know. Under, um, under penalty of perjury, Alex Jones admitted the truth. Um, that's important to know. I think my concern is that people who have believed the conspiracy theories, they're not now listening to the true the, the truthful testimony on the stand. They are still believing what they believe. And um, that is that is gets us sort of back to the conversation about conspiracy theories and a willingness to um, believe them. I mean, the damage is done. 
right? I mean, as soon as as soon as this narrative was promoted on such a high profile platform, and by the way, Alex Jones is not some small time Mm-mm. media host. He has he has a huge audience. I, I believe his salary is tens of millions of dollars a year from his media conglomeration. I mean, it, he's a big deal, right? He he has a huge platform. And so once the once this box is open, it's really, really hard to close the lid again, uh, particularly when you have an audience of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people tuning in. They're going to latch onto that, particularly. And you know this very well when those conspiracy theories and conspiracism supports what you already believe. Right. It gives you another talking point and another essentially notch to say, ah, yes, I was right. And so regardless of what Alex Jones said on the stand, that he acknowledges that this massacre actually did take place. I mean, the horses have left the this, this station at that point. The trains left the station at that point. Mm-hmm. We're well beyond where this would make a difference. Yeah. And for those of you wondering, um, during um, during one poli- one particular conservative political action conference in 2018, InfoWars was raking in 800 grand a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, you know, when we're talking about um, the the combined worth of these things, free speech systems um, and Infowars and Alex Jones, um, there there there's some kind of combined net worth between 135 and 270 million dollars. So when they describe themselves as unable to pay, let's say these uh, these punitive damages to these families, um, they're they're not being honest about that. Um, Alex Jones allegedly passed a, a note of apology to one of um, the Sandy Hook parents. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about contrition and how much space we have or capacity we have in our culture when somebody who has done something so publicly wrong and done it over such a long period of time um, tries to privately apologize. Do, do you see what I'm what I'm trying to dig out yeah. there? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think so. And I, I, it's hard to put myself in those types of positions, right? I remember uh, a few years ago when this with this, with this gunman opened fire at this uh, black church in South Carolina, killing, I think, nine people. Mm-hmm. And within a matter of days, family members of the victims ha- had gone on the media and said, we forgive this person in the name of Jesus. You know, it, it, it was incredibly powerful. Um, for Alex Jones in this scenario, if I'm a parent and I'm getting a private letter from him, who knows what the letter actually says? I almost and I, this is just me and it's, it's in my immediate reaction to what we're talking about. I might almost find that private letter more reputable than what Alex Jones is saying in public on television, considering the persona that he has built. Now, that doesn't make me feel better about it necessarily. Um, it doesn't make me all of a sudden say, oh, OK, all all is well. I have a hard time forgiving <laughs> you, frankly, especially with something like this, I can imagine. But I would almost trust what he says in private more than what he says in public, given the platform that he's built on deliberate misinformation. Um, and so we'll never know. Right. I mean, hopefully the, these families, you know, if this was a if this is an apology note that was written, they can view that as they may. But yeah, there is there is a bit of a gap in what someone says in public versus what they say in private. How genuine can we really see that be? I think um, the the scratch I want to or the itch I want to scratch is the distance between 
confession, which certainly, you know, this sort of private individual acknowledgement of wrongdoing. This is the, the, this this is a note of confession of some kind. We don't know the contents of it, but the person who received it is the one who has made it known. So the Sandy Hook mom, Scarlett mm. Lewis, is the one who has said he handed me a note and it includes an apology. So mm. this so there is this private individual confession. I think what I am then in turn looking for is not just, you know, public repentance. That's not I don't I'm not too concerned about that. But where he has led others to believe a lie, I feel yeah. like he is responsible to then lead them to the truth. No, I think it's 100 percent right. Uh, and you would hope that that would happen. I think I think what we're getting at here, what you're getting at here, and, and this is unfortunate, is it's probably not going to happen. Given the given the platform that's been built, right? This is a multi-million dollar media empire. It'd be great if tomorrow he were to say, "Yeah, you know that stuff I said ten years ago. I knew it was wrong. I did it to stoke your greatest fears and get you all riled up." Um, but really, what happened was, you know, so many of these little children did in fact die. I knew it was wrong then when I was on here yelling about how it was a government conspiracy. And by the way, I, there, was a, there was a very interesting profile of one of these parents several years ago whose son was killed in the shooting. And he actually was a fairly steady follower of Alex Jones and InfoWars material when he got on one of these message boards after the fact and said, hey, you know what? You guys are talking about this. I know this is true because it happened to me. My son died. He was viciously attacked by this community. And so that's what I'm concerned about is that even if Alex Jones says this now, his followers and his listeners who have already built up this narrative, I'm not sure, and this is very depressing, I'm not sure how much good it would actually do. The box has been opened, right? Mm. And they rationalize this in some way. Uh, I'm not sure it would make a huge difference. All right. We are going to rest in our hope in Jesus Christ because there's no pretty bow to put on this particular conversation. Um, But Daniel, as always, no, it's I mean, you know, right. That it's yeah, some Monday morning truth. Um, Thank you so much uh, for joining us. As always, you guys should be following Daniel Bennett. Uh, He's at John Brown University or the Uneasy Citizenship blog. You can also follow him on Twitter. Daniel R. Ben. Two ends. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge and this is Faith Radio. All right, when's the last time you had a good fight? Yeah, we're going to talk with Dr. Linda Mental about not just how to fight well, but how to fight good. (laughs) That's in the next hour of Mornings with Carmen. You're listening to Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.